now for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. What's up, listeners? I am your host, ex-video store clerk, undiscovered screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. As this airs, yesterday was Father's Day, and I hope all of the dads out there had a great day, felt appreciated. My dad and I have a pretty good relationship these days, but it wasn't always that way. We've been working on repairing our relationship for probably like I don't know, 15 years now, but I can honestly say that as rocky as my relationship with my dad has been in the past, it never got to the level of some of the fathers on our lists today, as me and Kiefer Lorette from the Select and Start podcast talk top five bad dads, and they range from negligent to outright terrible human beings, and maybe some not-so-human beings. But before we get to our lists, let's talk about what we missed from the last show, Top 5 Horror Directors with Ryan Bradley from Horror Hangover. Not in the top five. Did they get it right? Excuse my language. Okay. Hell no. (laughs) I can't believe. Who who made that list? Who made that? That's blasphemous. Don't look at me. That's blasphemous. A few directors that we missed from social media, Construction C said Kiyoshi Kurosawa. Ash said Sam Raimi for his DIY approach and instantly recognizable style. Davis said uh, Mario Bava and also mentioned Alexander Aha. Hit me up in, I don't know, 10 years and Aha might be in my top five for sure. Exploding Boy said uh, Panos Cosmatos. Funky Dancing Gnome said Mike is so good, needs more attention. KJ Raiden said James Wan. And a couple of recommendations from Digital Organism. They said Andre Zilowski, Lucille, okay, this is a tough name to pronounce, Lucille Hadzialilovich, Shinya Tsukamoto, Georgi Palfi, and Jan Svenkmer. I'm going to need to look some of those directors up. If you want to tell us what we missed, you can always find me on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. I do post on Reddit once in a while and on the Cinematics Facebook page. For this week's featured review, I was looking at the new Beverly calendar and I saw they had set it off as one of their films. I couldn't get down there to watch it, but I did have the Blu-ray because I have a three-pack that I bought for Friday, and it has it also has a menace to society in there, which I have the criterion of. But the third film in there is Set It Off. That's what we need to do. Rob a bank. Let's do it. On November 6th. Don't make me get ugly up in here, ladies and gentlemen. Y'all can't be serious. Four friends will set Don't move. it off. Set it off. Are we going to get away with this? Yes. Rated R starts Wednesday, November 6th. It's about a group of four female friends, each with their own reasons, who decide to start robbing Los Angeles banks. Set It Off was born from a New Line executive seeing Thelma and Louise and thinking it would be great if there was a film about female empowerment geared towards, as she put it in an interview, black chicks. F. Gary Gray was signed on as a director, having just come off the smash hit Friday. Now, I saw Set It Off in 1996 in the theater, but I remembered absolutely nothing about it 
other than how hot the soundtrack was selling while it was in theaters, and to be honest, I've never had the desire to go back to it. But when I heard them talking about the new Beverly show on the Pure Cinema podcast, it kind of got me interested in reevaluating it here 27 years later. Now, the movie starts off with a bang, as the bank that Francesca, aka Frankie, works at is robbed at gunpoint and a few people die. Frankie, played by Vivica A. Fox, survives but is unfairly fired on the spot, Blazer still covered in blood as she's getting canned because she knew one of the bank robbers. And I gotta tell you, I pulled a Rick Dalton jumping up, pointing at the TV screen in his couch because in this scene, the guy who sticks her up a gunpoint at the at the teller window is rapper Dub C, one of my favorite West Coast rappers. Noticed him even before the triple whip braids in his beard, and I have to say, he was actually really great in the minute that he was on screen. Shortly afterward, we're introduced to Frankie's three friends. We've got Cleo, a brutish lesbian with a record, Stoney, a woman who's resigned her own life in order to support her brother getting into UCLA, and Titi, a single mother whose acting and actions make her seem borderline mentally challenged, although I'm not sure the filmmakers were going for that. To get by financially, the four clean office buildings for Luther's janitorial services, and Luther treats them all like garbage. After some brutal realizations, the four women decide that they're going to rob a bank so that they can get Titi's kid and get out of the hood. After calling in some favors for gear, the four rob their first bank and abscond with 12 grand. Unfortunately, that kind of money isn't going to get them far, so they need to rob another one. But the wily detective Strode, played by John C. McKinley, is hot on the trail. The first thing that sticks out to me after watching this film was Jada Pinkett Smith's performance. I was blown away by her talent on display here. There's a really tragic event that Stoney is forced to endure as a catalyst for the bank robbery plan, and I teared up a little bit watching her try and reckon with things. And when things really start getting hot, you can see the weight of her decisions on her face, especially when things get complicated after she starts a relationship with a guy named Keith, an investment banker. I've always thought that she was gorgeous, but I never really realized how talented she could be in the small roles I've normally seen her in, and she was great here. Queen Latifah, who plays Cleo, was also fantastic as the group's powder keg. She's like the wild card in the situation. And she perfectly balanced the role of caring friend and magnum force. The first time we see her is at Stoney's brother's graduation party, and we learn everything we need to about her in the first minute on screen. She does not march to the beat of other people's drums, and she's always ready to stir the pot. I'm torn on Vivica A. Fox's character, Frankie. On one hand, her performance is fine, but her character is the least interesting in the bunch. She just wasn't given a whole lot to do, and her arc from loyal bank employee to trigger woman felt pretty accelerated and a little bit unearned. And then there's Kimberly Elise in her first role on screen as TT, who seems to be the odd woman out here. If I didn't know any better, I'd have thought that she was the little sister of one of the other girls who they felt bad leaving out of their schemes because she's so aloof, she's really meager, and it's to the point of annoyance. Now, I don't think this was the fault of Elise, who is a fine actor, but the material and direction she was given seems questionable at best. With another script pass, I'm guessing they could have combined T.T. and Frankie, and the film would have been stronger for it. Rounding out the main cast, we've got John C. McGinley as Detective Strode, and he is just great, as he always is. He's, uh, he's also a character with a bit of depth, as he's trying to bring the women in alive. During an early raid that does not go as planned, he excellently portrays pain when a young man dies unnecessarily. Because of F. Gary Gray's history as a music video director, rappers frequently make appearances in his films. So in addition to Dub C here, Dr. Dre makes his big screen debut as a local gunrunner. 
Set It Off is wildly entertaining, and it's because of the perfect balance between bank-robbing shenanigans and charismatic group interplay. The four women really seem like they have a history with each other, whether they're lamenting their station in life while on the clock cleaning offices, or lightly ribbing each other while smoking weed on the roof like they were on the scene of workaholics. Of course, once the bullets start flying, all of that could fall apart, but thankfully it does not. Car chases, gun battles, and blood-packed squibs are all shot in really entertaining ways. If I had one complaint about the action, it's that the first few times the women squeal away from the bank, nobody gives chase. And once they turn the corner, we just kind of catch up with them back at the hideout. I would have loved to see some more car chase stuff, and although we do get one at the end, you know, few and far between. And while the film is fun and charming, it also scratches the surface on some very real issues. There's a moment when Keith starts telling Stoney that she's got to think about the future. The whole, like, where do you see yourself in five years talk? And while he, an upper-class cultured man who has the time and money to think about the future, Cleo's answer to this question sums up the divide perfectly. She says, five years? I'm just trying to make it to the end of today. There's nothing chivalrous about these women robbing banks. They're just trying to get the fuck out of the hood. And the soundtrack, I mentioned it earlier, it bangs, it still rules, Parliament, Organized Noise, Busta Rhymes, Bone Thugs, Ghetto Boys, Eric B. and Rakeem, Miles Davis, The Goody Mob, and a lot more. I was surprised that there were no Dr. Dre, Dub C, or Ice Cube songs on here, but still, still a great soundtrack. This film was really successful financially. It cost just under $10 million to make and brought in over 40. It opened at number three on its opening weekend behind the debut of Ransom, the Mel Gibson film, and the second week of Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. It managed to hang on to the number four spot in its second weekend beating Romeo and Juliet, which slipped to number five, but getting crushed by the debut of Space Jam. The movie did have pretty good reviews. Roger Ebert had similar thoughts to mine, writing, Set It Off is advertised as a thriller about four black women who rob banks, but it's a lot more than that. It creates a portrait of the lives of these women that's so observant and informed. It's like waiting to exhale with a strong jolt of reality. The movie surprised and moved me. I expected a routine action picture and was amazed at how much I started to care about the characters. Now, while the Blu-ray disc looks and sounds great, the only real special feature is a 26-minute featurette that talks about the movie getting made. And it is entertaining, it's well-produced, but I would have loved a commentary track or some scenes that were left on the cutting room floor. And I bet that a film like this probably had some really funny outtakes, too. If you're looking for a good action movie, you're looking for a good female empowerment movie, I think that they really nailed it with Set It Off. I would highly recommend you check this movie out, especially if you like movies like the package that I've got here with Friday, Menace to Society, and Set It Off. I don't know if there's a triple pack with as much entertainment value as this one, and it costs like 10 bucks. So yeah, highly recommend Set It Off from 1996. Speaking of things that I highly recommend, it's time for today's sponsor. Summer is here, so you know what that means. It's time to stay inside. You know, who wants to be out in the heat all sweaty and shit? No, no, no. Stay inside with the air conditioning and the world's hottest new video game, Patrolman LA. Patrolman LA puts you in the action of Los Angeles, a peaceful law-abiding community, but not for long. Innocent lives are at stake when a ruthless drug thug named the Death Angel escapes from prison. He's after you, the cop who sent him to the clink. In Patrolman LA, it's up to you to return the crime-ridden streets to safety. From the lofty sky to the slimy sewers, you must stop at nothing to nab the infamous Death Angel and rescue his hostage-held honey, Sweet Cheeks Marie. 
with amazing 3D graphics, an expanded cityscape, and an intriguing plot that will test your detective street smarts, experience what it's really like to be a cop with Patrolman LA. Pick up Patrolman LA wherever you get your video games on whatever system you want. It's about time for Top 5 Bad Dads with Kiefer Lorette from Select and Start. Who would be on your list? Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight, my guest is Kiefer Lorette, host of the amazing Select and Start Podcast, a show that I was recently a guest on to talk about one of my favorite video games of all time, GoldenEye 007. Kiefer, how are you tonight? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. And I'm a huge fan of yours. I really, I, I suggest people go and listen to that GoldenEye episode, not only because you're, you'll get a sense of the quality that Kiefer puts out, but also you'll learn a bit about me that I've never talked about on this show. So highly recommend after you listen to this episode, go and listen to Select and Start. Um, now, we are going to talk about movies here in a bit, but I want to talk about one of our huge passions first, video games. So uh, obviously I covered 007 on, on an episode with you, but what is Select and Start all about? Uh, so Select and Start is, in simplest terms, a podcast about meaningful and memorable video game experiences. I'm the sole host, creator, producer, editor of the show, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a particular video game that means a lot to them. And this sort of creation came about because I wanted to talk about video games with people in my life. Uh, but I didn't really have a space where I had a bunch of people I could talk to, uh, you know, in my regular everyday life where I'm around people to talk about video games. But I was surrounded by people on Twitter and other social media who are way into video games. So this is a great way for me to talk about video games. And it's great because the format means I'm not really beholden to talking about current events in video games like a lot of podcasts are. So yeah. I go to a guest and I ask them, hey, uh, I'd like you to be on my show. Uh, what game would you like to talk about? Or they'll come to me and they'll tell me what kind of video game they want to play or talk about. And it really works out because uh, a lot of the time I did play the video game and I'm really excited to have a conversation about it. In your case, Jason, I'd actually never played the original GoldenEye 007. And I got to play that for the first time because of you. And that was a great experience. I think it's a game that holds up better than its reputation would suggest. So, you know, I really appreciate having you on the show. And it's great because, like you said earlier, um, people who don't really have the space to talk about video games on their stuff and their creative projects get to talk about them on my show. I've had uh, you know, a friend of the show and a guest on your show, Eric Peacock, on to talk about uh, Resident Evil 4, which he doesn't really get to talk about organically in his show Soundtracker because it's about movie soundtracks. I've had Michael from 5 to 4, uh, you know, he gets to talk about law professionally in his podcast, yeah. but I got to talk about uh, Horizon Zero Dawn with him. So it's just a really good show and it's a lot of people are excited to be on it because they don't really get the chance to talk about video games much in their lives either. Yeah. And even if you haven't played these games, it, it will just the way that people speak about their experiences with these games makes you want to seek them out and play them. And they're from all kinds of eras. Like he said, uh, Resident Evil 4. Well, that's been on plenty of platforms, but I talked about GoldenEye on Nintendo 64. Somebody just had a Legend of Zelda episode. I mean, they're they're from all these different eras. What have you been playing lately in terms of video games? Uh, I just wrapped up playing, uh, speaking of Resident Evil 4, I just recently played the remake for that. And I, I was worried about it, but it's actually been an incredible experience and I loved it. Uh, but for the past few weeks, uh, you know, it's June now, 
<laughs> it's been all the new Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom game all the time. Uh, you know, <laughs> I work a full-time job and I do the podcast thing and I also appear on other people's podcasts, but any free time I get uh, lately, any couch time I have, I'm really dedicating to this new Zelda game. I'm obsessed with it. It's fantastic. I've heard really good things. I don't have a Nintendo console, but at some point I'm sure I will and, and I will catch up at, on the Zelda series. Mm-hmm. I'm still stuck on Elden Ring, man. I know when we <laughs> talked, I had just started it, and now I'm like 200 hours in on my second playthrough, and uh, it's just an insane experience. No, I mean, a year ago today, I was in the same place with Elden Ring. This, this Tears of the Kingdom is really the first time I've been into a video game on the same level as I've been to with Elden Ring, where it's just kind of like all of my couch time is dedicated to this game because it's so rich and full of stuff, and it just feels so satisfying to play. So I'm really glad to share into Elden Ring because it really is one of those like really, really great games to me. Well, I am looking forward to uh, to diving in at some point. Now, Kiefer, I'm normally terrible at segues, but I think I got a good way to get into movies here. What's your favorite video game adaptation to film? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, there haven't been a ton of great adaptations famously, <laughs> but there are more no, than there people... No, there have not been. Yeah, but there are more than people give them credit for. I actually really like... The first, well, not really like, but I kind of like Paul W.S. Anderson's Resident Evil film, the original one, at least. I think that that's actually a really fun movie that's nothing like Resident Evil, but is just a fun movie on its own. Um, but in terms of like adaptation uh, into television, I think Castlevania is head and shoulders above any of the other mm. adaptations I've seen. Um, and that's just a really good story. Beautiful animation. Uh, has its own original story that sort of working off the framework that those really early games set up. So it's really interesting to see something new happen with like familiar iconography. And these stories are very rich and complex in like a game of Thrones, high fantasy kind of way that, you know, you wouldn't expect from a standard video game adaptation. Somebody who is just completely unfamiliar with Castlevania can walk into these, walk into the show and, it wouldn't affect their experience of it at all. It's it's just so good. That's on uh, Netflix, right? Yes. I'll have to check that out at some point. I haven't seen it yet. What about some of your favorite films of all time, just in general? Oh, uh, another great question. My taste is all over the place. I've been really getting into movies over the past few years, and the pandemic really put that on another level because I got to just experience so many different things in such a short period of time. Um, but, it, it, you know, obviously it felt like forever. But... I'd say recently, um, a lot of my favorite movies are movies that I have sort of come into over the past few years. Uh, Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express, uh, as well as Fallen Angels. I think that those are two of some of the most beautiful films ever made. Um, I really like Ingmar Bergman's Persona. I really like uh, Phantom of the Paradise by Brian De Palma. Um, Oh, yeah, that's something. But it's not just like, oh, you know, these very artsy-fartsy whatever movies. I also love um the empire strikes back right i really love that film i really love evil dead 2 i love sam raimi movies i love sam raimi movies so much so i would say a lot of those are among my favorite movies ever made well in in at least one of those movies you mentioned there's a real bad dad Mm -hmm. and uh that's what we're gonna be talking about today Uh, yesterday was father's day i'm wondering what your inspiration for this list was you know as long as stories have been told people have been airing out grievances with our shitty dads. (laughs) Um, Without it, we wouldn't have some of the greatest works and some of the greatest films of the last 50 years. Um, I think 
it is sort of a universal feeling for people to have, you know, failed or underwhelming or disappointing, uh, you know, adult figures in their lives. And, you know, people want to work through that experience in, you know, some artistic way. And it's produced a lot of movies that just mean so much to me. I don't have the best relationship with my dad, but um, seeing how other people cope with these things or seeing, uh, you know, how other people's dads are bad or disappointing in similar ways or different ways. It just is this really interesting topic and it happens so often and it happens so much. And these father issues can manifest in ways that are both literal or metaphorical or just manifest themselves as different kinds of anxiety, whether that's like in Steven Spielberg films or in, uh, you know, David Lynch's Eraserhead. There's just so many different ways that people express like, you know, anxieties about fatherhood or father issues in you know different ways and that's why i thought that this is a really interesting topic to talk about yeah it's a, a definitely a rich topic with uh, i'm looking at my honorable mentions i have like seven different honorable mentions <laughs> along with my top five and i'm sure i left off a ton that i didn't even think of right there's people on my list that range from the negligent to the outright vile um but there's yeah there's a huge range of how you might describe a bad dad Hey, I'm I'm ready to get into this list if you are Kiefer from Select and Start. You want to talk bad dads? I'm very excited to talk about bad dads. You know what's going to happen? No, no, no. You know what's happening no, 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 right no, no, now? No, no, no. You know what's going to happen? Boys, you just made the list. All right, top 5 bad dads. You're the guest. I'm going to leave it up to you. Do you want to go first or do you want me to kick it off with my number 5? I'm totally fine kicking it off. All right, Kiefer, what do you got at number five on top five bad dads? My number five pick for top five bad dads is Pa Cox from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, uh, played by Raymond J. Barry. <laughs> All right. I totally forgot about this, but man, that fits well. This was a particularly bad case of somebody being cut in half. I was not able to reattach the top half of his body to the bottom half of his body. Speak English, Doc. We ain't scientists. I'm sorry, folks. He's he's gone. Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no! It's all your fault, Dewey Cox. Oh, Paul, you don't mean that. It's not his fault. He cut him in half with a machete. <laughs> you. You're not half the boy that Nate was. You're not even half the boy that the top half of Nate was after you cut him in half. So you're saying I'm less than a quarter of the boy Nate was? The wrong kid died. I wanted to start because this is probably my favorite comedy movie ever made. Um, I think it's a deeply hilarious movie that somehow only ages better as more and more musical biopics get made. It's sort of <laughs> weird that this sort of started at the beginning of the trend where we had movies like Ray and um, the Walk the Line. I was tripping up over it because I think Walk Hard probably has endured more than Walk the Line has. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, Walk Hard is a parody of a musical biopic and like it parodies the beats of the musical biopic, biopic. And despite this movie being made in 2007, all of these beats still recognizably happen in basically every musical biopic we see, unless they really try and, you know, distinct themselves like in um, Love and Mercy uh, or something like that. Pa Cox is the embodiment of every 
archetypal bad dad in these films who either doubts or abuses or neglects the kid who ends up becoming this ultra mega star. And I quote this movie basically every day. I think I say wrong kid died at least once a week in my everyday life. <laughs> Not only is this a great bad dad for Pa Cox, but it's also you, you could argue that Dewey Cox is also a really terrible father, too. Yeah, that's completely fair. And you can, you know, like it sort of like sets the seeds of like, you know, generational like father negligence, but it's very uninterested with that. It's just very funny the way, uh, you know, bad fatherhood is depicted in this movie um, with a <laughs> where it escalates to the point that uh, towards the end of the movie, Pa Cox is confronting Dewey with a machete in an attempt to kill him. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's a terrible dad from the jump. Mm-hmm. This um and you can yeah, you can see how that like generational trauma passes down to Dewey because he's married at 14 years old. He has just a boatload of kids and as he gets famous, he keeps having kids. He has kids with different women and there's a hilarious montage near the end of the film where he starts trying to reconnect with these people and he's having he's he's basically playing catch with all these kids of different ages. Uh, really, really funny movie. It's also really surprising how these this movie came out lampooning or spoofing that genre. And films, like you said, keep coming out with the same formula. Bohemian Rhapsody, like how do you make Bohemian Rhapsody after the Dewey Cox story has come out? You, you know, it's just like you're kind of making fun of yourself at that point if you're making a serious movie that Dewey Cox just shit all over. Right. It perfectly lays out all of the beats there. Like it, none of it is <laughs> like it, it basically does everything. If you've watched Dewey Cox, it ruins watching any of these movies because it perfectly spells out everything. And it's just kind of a testament to how uninspired Hollywood can be. But it is also just, you know, a testament to how prescient this movie was in terms of, you know, <laughs> only being able to age better over time, despite you know it being a comedy movie in 2007, which was a pretty dicey time. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you've never seen Dewey Cox, rush out and check it out. The music is actually really good. It's got mm-hmm. a great cast. John C. Riley plays Dewey Cox, and he is amazing in this, but it's also got Jenna Fisher, who you would definitely know as Pam from The Office. Margot Martindale is his mother. There's just there's a ton of different cameos. Tim Meadows has one of the, his funniest roles in this mm-hmm. as Sam. There's a, a moment with um, some cocaine that lives in my brain rent-free all the time. It's just so, so funny. Oh, yeah. Get out of here, Dewey. You don't want any part of this shit is also somehow <laughs> something I say almost every day. I think Tim Meadows is genuinely one of the funniest people alive. Yeah, he's and, and he's so good in this, too. All right, that's a, a solid way to kick us off here. At my number five, I went with somebody who on the surface seems like a good dad, but he's so goddamn negligent that I couldn't help but put him on this list, and that's Peter McAllister from Home Alone. What's a child's name? Kevin. Kevin. K-E-V. Right. When did you uh, see him last? Curbside check-in? No, I saw him at the door. He was with us in the terminal. Uh, most people get uh, separated at security checkpoints. Uh, did everyone get through security? I don't know. Peter. We were in a hurry. We were in a hurry. Our, our, we had to run all the way to the gate. When did you uh, notice he was missing? When we picked up our baggage here. Has boy ever run away from home? No. Has he ever been in a situation where he's been on his own? And, uh, 
As a matter of fact, this has happened before. It's becoming sort of a McAllister family travel tradition. <laughs> Funnily enough, we never lose our luggage. <laughs> <laughs> Peter McAllister is exorbitantly rich. He lives in this really nice, really big house in Chicago. He's got five kids. He's got a scatterbrained wife. And in the beginning of Home Alone, they're getting ready for a vacation in Paris. His brother's staying with him. And his brother's got a bunch of kids too. His brother has like six kids. And so this there's like 12, 13, 14 people staying in this house. And they got to get to the airport on time the next morning. This guy has no control over his household. Pizza guys are walking in and out. Cops are walking in and out. He has no control over what's going on. One of the things that makes this dude a bad dad is he does not check his brother, Uncle Frank. Now, Uncle Frank's a real piece of shit. Yeah. He um, he calls his son a little jerk. Look what you did, you little jerk. Now, I don't care who it is. If somebody's calling my kid a little jerk, I'm having I'm having some discussion with them. I'm having some words. And he just, like, doesn't even care. All right? And and then you got, you know, they get on the plane, and they don't realize that Kevin's missing until they're in the air. So they, you know, everybody knows Home Alone. Kevin McAllister has to defend his house from the, the wet bandits, and there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the next year after this traumatic event, <laughs> he decides, we're going to go on vacation again. This time we're going to go, I think they're going to like Miami or something to get out of the, the winter in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And yet again, they board a plane, not realizing that their child accidentally boarded another plane. And this is the second time this happens. You got to think that if you are Peter McAllister, you got Kevin on, a, on one of those fucking leashes. And sure, you could say it was technically Kevin's fault that he was fumbling with batteries and lost track of his family. But it's his parents' responsibility to make sure he's on that plane. And if you need any other proof that Peter McAllister is a bad dad, all five of his, all five of his kids are kind of dicks. Yeah. Buzz is a dick. His daughters are dicks. They're just all dicks. Kevin's a dick, too. It's no um, surprise that the McAllisters apparently split up in Home Alone 4, which uh, most people probably haven't seen, and you're probably safe not seeing it for the rest of your life. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Home Alone, Peter McAllister, that's my number five. No, he's such a passive piece of shit the entire time. Like, the mom is always the first person who notices that Kevin's missing. She is the one in the first movie who really dedicates herself to the cause of finding Kevin. And like we can make the argument, oh, yeah, Peter has to keep the peace. There are other kids he has to worry about. He has to manage the family, this, that, and the other. No, no, he, he just is a passive piece of shit. He doesn't really add to anything and it was something that was really bugging me when I rewatched these movies last Christmas is that Peter like they could have set up that sequel perfectly where it could have been okay now it's Peter's turn to really reckon with his relationship with Kevin the way the mom did in the first movie but no nope he doesn't he isn't the one that notices it's the mom again uh when they're at the airport you know they're making jokes about the fact that hey we got our luggage but we lost a kid no you don't get the sympathy (laughs) laugh for that you lost your kid a second time. I bet that if if she didn't realize Kevin was missing, he probably would have been knee-deep in baguettes before he even realized it in France. He was right next to him at the airport in the second movie, and he lost him. That, that That's loser, <laughs> passive dad behavior. For number four, uh, I'm, you know, we started with the negligence route and, you know, did comedy movies. Uh, I'm going to jump right into Absentee Fathers for number four. 
Uh, my number four pick for the top five bad dads is H. Clifford McBride in Ad Astra, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. I, I didn't even think about this. That's why I'm here. I'm going to stop it. Get the two of us back home, maybe. This is home. This is a one-way voyage, my son. You talking about birth? There was never anything for me there. I never cared about you or your mother or any of your small ideas. For 30 years, I've been breathing this air, eating this food, enduring these hardships. And I never once thought about home. And maybe it's because it's recent, so it doesn't really make any of these watch mojo lists for bad dads or whatever people want to look up. But this was a movie that really stuck with me. Uh, this movie came out in 2019. It's directed by James Gray. And Ad Astra is set at the end of the 21st century where power surges are causing mass devastation on Earth. Uh, Roy McBride, uh, played by Brad Pitt, is told by his commanding officers that these power surges may be caused by a space station manned by his long-lost father, Cliff McBride. And this space station was part of the Lima Project, which was a search for intelligent life beyond Earth that started like 30 years ago. And uh, he says, they say like, okay, right now this, you know, is stationed in Neptune. Uh, this may be like what is causing these power surges. We're going to send you to Mars to try and communicate to him and see what we can do to manage the situation. We don't know if this is terrorism or what, but hey, guess what? Your dad's alive and uh, it's it's a problem. So go, go deal with it. Um, I love this movie. It has some rough edges and it isn't for everybody, but I really love what this movie has to say about humanity and the nature of their relationships with each other because this, you know, Brad Pitt's character is like really emotionally stunted because his dad abandoned him and left him 30 years ago. Um, and it's not a father son, you know, adventure film. It's not like, let's solve this problem together, dad. It's, really just reckoning with like the nature of an absence of love, an absence of a presence, not having a father in your life or just like any, you know, crucial, crucial love in your life and how isolating that feeling is. Um, and Roy continues to escalate the mission beyond its initial parameters because he desperately needs disclosure because he feels so disconnected from humanity in a way that his dad was probably disconnected from humanity to the point that he just abandons his life and goes to space for 30 years without even like a second thought about his family. So he is trying to get answers for that. Uh, and it just keeps escalating shenanigans into some really weird places. This is a movie that very early on shows an Applebee's on the moon, uh, which is already an uncanny effect that really accentuates the whole like feeling of isolation and unfamiliarity and familiar and familiar spaces. But it gets weirder from Applebee's on the moon somehow. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, I liked Ad Astra a lot. I totally forgot that uh, the person he was seeking out was his dad. The main thing I remember from this is a really interesting chase scene that you'll never, you'll probably never see in another movie. Mm -hmm. Almost like a zero gravity or low gravity chase scene. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Like the th same reason. There's like the things that people criticize about this movie. Like you said, that uh, chase sequence. I think that that is the funniest and coolest and weirdest, you know, thing in the world. And it's very compelling. And a lot of people hate it. And I really just think it's a matter of taste and like being on the wavelength of this movie because 
it goes weird places. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Well, normally, like I said at the top, I'm pretty bad at segues, but your number four gives way to my number four quite nicely because your themes of your number four were stuff like absentee father, uh, somebody who's been gone and and now they're emotionally stunted because of it. And that uh, is a perfect segue to my number four, Royal Tenenbaum from the Royal Tenenbaums. Can I ask you something, Hank? Okay. Are you trying to steal my woman? I beg your pardon. You heard me, Coltrane. Coltrane? What? Did you just call me Coltrane? No. You didn't? No. Okay. But if I did, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, would you? You don't think so? No, I don't. Listen, Royal, if you think you can march... You want to talk some jive? I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on! Sit down. What? What, what did you say? I said sit down! Oh, down. I heard you! I want you out of my house! I'm just as much your house! I'm the ass out! Don't talk semantics with me! No, this is not your... What's going on here? Uh, so this is a Wes Anderson film. It's my favorite Wes Anderson film. And you could say there's a lot of uh, bad parental figures in a lot of Wes Anderson material. But Royal Tenenbaum is quite possibly the worst. He really seems like he has no interest in being a father, even though he has three kids. And this starts from a young age. He almost starts grooming these kids to just be really great at one thing. So his daughter, he starts grooming her into being a great artist. And then he's got two sons, one who he's making into a tennis player and then another who he's turning into a businessman. He is just a a real piece of shit. He outwardly favors Richie, who is the tennis star, played in older age by Luke Wilson. He steals money from his kids He belittles them. He teases them. 22 years prior, he just decides he he decides I'm out. He just leaves and he lives in a very expensive hotel and he has not talked to anybody in 22 years until he runs out of money. And then he tries to crawl back to his family by faking stomach cancer to get back into their house and their good graces. So all these uh, all the Tenenbaum kids come back to try and maybe reconcile or like figure things out as a family unit. And while he's there, he continues to abuse them uh, verbally. And he, now he's like trying to latch on to his uh, one of his son Chaz's kids. And he tries to break up his ex-wife's new relationship while he's at it. There's a, a great website called Brightwall Dark Room. And he did a uh, he did an article on Royal Tenenbaums and how it was helping him deal with stuff. And I, I thought this great passage perfectly explains why he's such a shit dad. Uh, so he, he writes Chaz and his father, and Chaz is played by Ben Stiller. He's the the one that he was trying to groom into a businessman. A relationship that results in his emotional and physical abandonment during childhood to the spiral we find him in as an adult after his wife's untimely death. At every stage of development, the important relationships in Chaz's life, the ones he should be able to count on the most, are taken away from him. It's no wonder he has his two young boys, Ari and Uzi, running safety drills in the middle of the night. If life has taught him anything, it's to expect the eventual loss of everyone closest to him. And I think that perfectly encapsulates why Royal Tenenbaum is such a jerk. 
If you've never seen The Royal Tenenbaums, it's a fantastic movie. Every character is memorable. When we say every frame of painting, there are so many moments in this that you could frame and put on a wall. It's a great looking movie. It's a really funny movie. There are things in here, like you with Dewey Cox, that I quote all the time. But yeah, a Royal Tenenbaum from The Royal Tenenbaums is my number four. All right, Kiefer, what do you got at number three? Number three, um, you know, my fourth pick was in outer space. Sort of jumping from that, I wanted to go to another intergalactic asshole. Um, <laughs> my number three pick is probably the most famous bad dad of all time, Darth Vader, specifically in 1983's Return of the Jedi. This is a rebel that surrendered to us. Although he denies it, I believe there may be more of them, and I request permission to conduct a further search of the area. He was armed only with this. Good work, Commander. Leave us. Conduct your search and bring his companions to me. Yes, my lord. The Emperor has been expecting you. I know, Father. So, you have accepted the truth. I've accepted the truth that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father. That name no longer has any meaning for me. It is the name of your true self you've only forgotten. I know there is good in you. The Emperor hasn't driven it from you fully. I figured this might come up on your list. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Um, I did mention mere minutes ago that Empire Strikes Back is one of my favorite films of all time, but I'm just really hard in the paint for Star Wars. And I will save you all of that and just sort of focus on the topic at hand, which is bad dads, good God. Uh, so the reason I picked Return of the Jedi over Empire Strikes Back is because, you know, the twist comes in. Empire Strikes Back is where like the I am your father conversation happens. But that's towards the end of the movie. Up until this point, Darth Vader is just the bad guy. He is the physical embodiment of the Empire. He is what we understand to be the most dangerous thing in the galaxy. We do not really have an emotional connection with him, but we are emotionally invested in Luke Skywalker. Once that connection is established, you know, now they are like linked to each other and you have to have more complicated feelings about Darth Vader, just like how Luke has more complicated feelings about Darth Vader. This is his dad. This is Anakin Skywalker. This is the person that he had one perception of and now has a completely different one. And Return of the Jedi's climax is all centered on the conflict between uh, Vader and Luke. And this is where Darth Vader actually develops as a character. Um, so you have this moment where Luke intentionally gives himself up so he can be captured by the Empire and Darth Vader can take him to the Emperor. And then it becomes a job interview. And it's like, you can go and uh, kill your father and join me and, you know, give in to your anger or like your father will kill you. And it's, you know, this whole, you know, thing. And like, he's being set off. And Luke is having this internal battle with himself where he's like, am I a good person? Like, can I be good? I I've been devoted to the idea of, you know, becoming a Jedi. Everybody's telling me I need to kill my dad. Everybody's telling me that I need to do this. You know, the Emperor's telling me I need to kill my dad. Uh, you know, the Jedi are telling me I need to kill my dad. You know, and then he goes berserk. He does actually fight his dad and he chops his arm off uh, just like his dad chopped his arm off. And he sees that, oh, he also had a robot arm. He has also had his humanity taken away from him. He is, you know, there, there's something complicated here. He is somebody 
who has something underneath him. And he gives up. He says, like, I am a Jedi like my father before me. He chooses to see the humanity in his father at a pivotal moment where he could have given in to those dark instincts. We want to, you know, in moments of pure rage and, you know, people who have complicated feelings about their dad just want to be able to really write everything off and just sort of give in to the anger that, you know, these people, this is an unsalvageable thing. And despite Darth Vader being possibly the most evil person in the world, torture, genocide, uh, you know, makes the call to blow up Alderaan, uh, all of this stuff, you know, child murder, genocide, everything is on the list there. At the end of the day, he kills the emperor to save his son. And his final moments are him telling Luke, you know, tell your sister, who I, you know, never really got the chance to truly get to know, you were right. It kills me. That's just incredible. Like, you know, people have their criticisms of Return of the Jedi, and it's not as good as the first two Star Warses, but that whole landing sticks. Uh, the emotional arc of Luke being the ultimate good and creating a new, you know, creating, making the world a better place by rejecting the teachings of the Jedi and rejecting the, you know, the, the dark side to save his father. That's all incredible. And, you know, yeah, Darth Vader is a fucking asshole. He's evil. He's a bad dad. He's done terrible things. He's done terrible things to his daughter. He's done terrible things to his son. He's done terrible things to his daughter's boyfriend. He's the worst. But God damn it, if it isn't compelling. It sure is. I mean, it's compelling enough that uh, everybody, whether you've seen Star Wars or not, knows that quote, right? Luke, I mm. am your father or whatever that uh, the exact quote is. I'm sure somebody will correct me, but no comma. I am your father. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, there's there's so many. It, it's just kind of permeated into pop culture in a way that when you look at any list of bad dads in film, this is on all of those lists because it is such an iconic moment. And he's such an iconic character, and he's such a terrible dad. Yeah, Return of the Jedi is your, the worst take-your-son-to-work-day ever. You're just, you keep giving me these layups in terms of segues, because my next one is an intergalactic dad who torture, genocide, all on the table. When you said those words, I was like, oh, is this going to be my number three? But uh, no, you said Darth Vader. My number three is Thanos. Pretty, isn't it? Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Too much to one side or the other. Here, you try. Now go in peace. Meet your maker. Concentrate. Thanos is one of the biggest supervillains in movie history simply because he's been in, uh, well, he's been across many, many Marvel films, including uh, Infinity War and Endgame, which were some of the top grossing films of all time. In the comic books, Thanos has a long history of literally killing his children, even babies in certain comic books. But we're going to focus just on his film appearances here. Thanos has two adopted daughters, Gamora and Nebula, who he adopted solely to make his assassins. He did not really want children. He just wanted these people that he could 
turn them into. Just like Royal Tenenbaum with Richie, he favors Gamora. But he doesn't really love her. I, they, they try to make this plot point in, uh, I think it's Infinity War, where he has this intense love for her. And I don't think he loves her. I think he just loves the idea of what he could turn her into in terms of giving the throne to her someday. It's like those parents who make their kid practice something for 40 hours a week, even if they don't want to do it. And to to get her so isolated, he literally kills anybody close to her, family, friends, so that he can have that space where she just latches on to him. Now, there's also Nebula. And what this psycho does is he continuously pits the sisters against one another in battle. And every time Nebula loses, he replaces a body part with a cybernetic implant. And so if you go to watch uh, like Guardians of the Galaxy 3, she's pretty much all cyborg at this point because of this. And she mentions it in that film that she's she's got like she just carries this trauma with her of what her father did to her. He forces Gamora to watch while he tortures Nebula at one point. And uh, I think Gamora's quote really, really kind of encapsulates what a piece of shit he was when she says, everything about myself that I despise was put there by you. At one point, he's forced to choose between his daughter and an Infinity Stone. And if you haven't seen one of those films, well, you should probably go watch the uh, Avengers movies. But uh, needless to say, he makes a choice that uh, many of us probably would not. Right. Uh, you know, you make a great point about like the confusing um, nature of like what he sees in Gamora, because to get the soul stone, it's kind of like you have to sacrifice that which you covet most. And it's like, does he? Because it's not really, <laughs> you know, obviously he is a very, you know, evil character. There's no other way to put it. There's There's very little to empathize with there, but like he gives the, you know, illusion of humanity. And I think that that's like some of the weaker stuff. But I do think, you know, you spending so much of your time talking about Gamora and Nebula really speak to the strength of Thanos' character through his actions, mainly in the Guardians films in which he never really appears in because they do such a good job with the characterization of Gamora and Nebula and their relationship. The way that these, even when their father isn't around, they're still pitted against each other in those first two movies because like their dad, you know, set them up to be that way. You know, they, they, they just go at it no matter what. And they have to work through that. Like even when our dad isn't around, we still want to kill each other. Look at how messed up that is. And Gamora making, giving herself the space to like really have a family that she can like use to get out of that, you know, self-hating cycle and becoming more than just, you know, a weapon and a tool for her, you know, evil father who wants to wipe out half the universe. It, you know, it's great. And then Nebula is just a fantastic character too, in a way that isn't really talked about as much in terms of like, you know, she is the tortured one. She is the loser. She's the one that got nothing. And when she's able to break out of that and, you know, accept the love of her sister and, you know, move beyond that stuff. It's, it's great. Both great characters. Yeah, he's a he's a great character. He's a great villain. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first people that came up in my mind when we started talking about uh, bad dads. Because it's like, man, his reach and and the trauma that he's caused his kid isn't one movie. It spans over the course of like you know a dozen movies, and I think that's that's really impressive. 
sure. It's definitely far-reaching trauma. Yeah. Okay, number two. Number two. So after his death last year, I really got into the films of Peter Bogdanovich. Mm. Um, I really, really love What's Up, Doc. But another movie of his that I love, and both of these are movies I'd consider my favorite, is Paper Moon. Great movie. Paper Moon, which stars Ryan O'Neal as Moe's Prey, who is my number two pick. Then if you ain't my pa, I want my tuna dollars. Okay. I want my tuna dollars. I heard you through the door talking that man. It's my money you got, and I want it. Mm-hmm. You just hold on a second. I want my money. You took my tuna dollars. Will you quiet down? You hear? I want my tuna dollars. Hold on. Just hold on. Let me explain something to you. It ain't as if you was my pa, that'd be different. Well, I ain't your pa, so just get that out of your head. I don't care what those neighbor ladies said. I look like you that. You don't look nothing like me. You don't look any more like me than, than you do that Coney Island. Eat that damn thing, you hear? We got the same jaw. Lots of people got the same jaw. It's possible. No, no, it ain't possible. And I want my tuna dollars. All right. For those who don't know, Paper Moon is a 1973 comedy movie about a traveling con man named Mose Prey who attends the funeral of a former lover of his in Gorham, Kansas. And at the funeral, he meets the departed woman's nine-year-old daughter, Addie Loggins, who was played by Ryan O'Neill's real-life daughter, Tatum O'Neill. Um, right away, Addie suspects that Mose is her biological father, which she immediately denies. But he is convinced by the you know other attendees of the funeral to take Addie to her aunt's house in Missouri since he's already established himself in the area as a traveling Bible salesman, which you know is part of his recent grift because he is fundamentally not a good person. He is <laughs> he is there for the grind. He is there to to sell expensive Bibles to unsuspecting people, uh, and shenanigans ensue as he brings his daughter, not his daughter, not necessarily. He denies that it's his daughter. They never resolved whether or not it's his daughter in the movie, but he takes um, uh, Addie, this nine-year-old girl, along for the ride, and. The thing is, like, immediately you think, like, oh, this child is going to appeal to his moral center and he's going to become a better person. No. That's what makes <laughs> this movie so good is they're both pieces of shit, but they are, like, having this complicated relationship. The way that um, a bad movie would have, you know, a worse movie, I should say, would have, like, Ryan O'Neill being like, oh, you can't be like this. You're just a little girl. And I have to, you know, don't don't be like me. No, it's just kind of like, She's in it. She wants to do the scams. She's like, I can get you more money because I'm a little girl and like people will listen to me. I can give you a sense of legitimacy because nobody's going to suspect a little girl is just going to, you know, do scams. I got all kinds of scams we can do. Let's let's do this. I I need a cut, you know. You owe me money because my you know, because you know, you got money, you know, off my mom's death, you know. Let's 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 get this stuff paid off. She's smart. She's intuitive. And he's, you know, they're both just dumb pieces of shit. But ultimately, like the sweetness of this movie is that they do like each other. They like being around each other. I'm not going to like spoil where the movie goes, but this, the way that they talk to each other, like he does not really regard her as like a young girl, but just sort of like they have like an almost sibling kind of bickering thing going on. He doesn't talk down to her. He just sort of argues with her. She's blasting cigs, even though she's nine years old. Um it's hilarious, but there's something very moving about the way that they sort of do end up bringing empathy out from one another and how they are they deeply care for one another. And like, it just comes out in little ways. Like after an argument, they're like, Hey, are you hungry? Let's go and get some food. (laughs) It's just a very sweet movie. Um, you know, 
it, it never really resolves the fact that um, the, the question of like, is he actually uh, her dad or not? But I wanted to count this anyway because, you know, Ryan O'Neill is very much, you know, an actual father to Tatum O'Neill. And Ryan O'Neill is famously a horrible, horrible father. I'm not going to get into the details of it on this show. Uh, it's very unpleasant stuff. But if you are curious, please look it up. It's one that I don't think has ever come up on this show. So I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't even think of this when I was thinking about bad dads. I remember the first time I watched this, you already mentioned it, but the thing that I was most uh, like, oh, this guy, like, what is he, what is he letting her do? It wasn't the crimes. It was her smoking cigarettes <laughs> at age nine. There's something about this real life daughter and father on screen that they have this authentic connection. Mm-hmm. And it, it definitely shines through. It's a really, really funny movie, too. I think if, if you've never seen Paper Moon, you should definitely go and give this a shot. But it's like at the beginning of New Hollywood, which is also like when every director is sort of doing like, oh, I have father issues. Let's go talk about it in a movie thing like a Spielberg is coming up during this time. So it's like yeah. a it's like a new old movie. So like a lot of it feels modern, even though it's intentionally filmed in black and white because it's set during um, the Great Depression. But it's it's hilarious. It feels modern and it's a lot smarter than movies trying to do the same like piece of shit. Dad uh, has to take care of this kid now you know, premise doesn't do even though this movie came first. Like, it's just a uniquely great film. My number two is another one that is more neglect, but I, I had to put this high on my list just because this person's uh, negligence continuously puts his kids and uh, his neighbor's kids in jeopardy. And I know I, I might get some pushback on this because on the surface, this dude might seem like a good dad. But honestly, once you think about it critically, he's really not. It's uh, Wayne Zielinski from the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids series. I called the police. What's on your head? Uh, I was looking for the kids. Where? In a coal mine? They're in the backyard. They are? Diane, I got something real important to tell you. That is the couch from the attic. You can see the marks where Cork chewed the arms. I found it on the floor. It's my thinking couch. Wayne, are you trying to tell me you did it? It works. The machine works. Do the kids know? Well, yeah, the kids know. That's great. No, it's not that great. Why? I shrunk the kids. What? And the Thompson kids, too. They're about this big. They're in the backyard. What? Threw them out with the trash. Get his ass. <laughs> the first one, I get it. He's got this uh, shrink ray that he's working on in the attic. Uh, he assumes his kids won't go up there. As a dad, you got to assume your kid's going to go everywhere. And in the first movie, the kids, they, they go upstairs after hitting a baseball through the window, and they get shrunk by this shrink ray. And, of course, they go through this huge, really fun adventure. But if you look at it from the kid's point of view, at one point, Wayne almost eats them in his Cheerios. Like, they're in extreme danger. Well, of course, it's a Disney movie from 1989, so they do get out of that danger. And they move to Nevada, where he starts working for a big company because obviously he's a, clearly a talented scientist. But now, this is three years later, he has a two-year-old. 
and he takes the two-year-old along with his other kids to the the big corporation to kind of show off his new thing in enlarging ray in order to like test it out they use it on the kid's stuffed animal and sure enough it turns into this giant stuffed animal and then he turns his back and just like totally disregards his two-year-old who walks over and gets enlarged by this ray now he's got a kaiju sized two-year-old wreaking havoc in las vegas so yeah. clearly he's learned nothing from the first one about safeguards and watching his kids and later he shrinks himself and it's really funny because in that third movie his kids while he's tiny his kids have a discussion of like should we just leave him tiny <laughs> and it, at that point it's like yeah i mean you might be safer if your dad wasn't designing all this zany stuff now if we move into the tv show i don't know if if you were aware there's a tv show there was a tv show no i'm aware of all of this actually somehow like (laughs) it's weird like it's it was like i'm 26 like a lot of this stuff happened before i was born but somehow i've seen like a lot of the honey i shrunk the kids franchise yeah there's a tv show it ran for three seasons and almost every episode of this tv show is wayne Zelinsky making stupid ass inventions that are putting his kids in danger there's an episode called honey we've been swallowed by grandpa where again mm. he shrinks them and grandpa eats them and then you have uh this gem honey the house is trying to kill us where he basically makes a smart home that is trying to kill everybody inside. You've got uh, Honey, I'm Haunted, where he invents something that makes his son able to see dead people two years before The Sixth Sense came out. You've got uh, Honey, the Bear is Bad News, where he makes these teddy bears that like malfunction and go insane. Honey, I'm a Mermaid, where he turns his daughter into a fucking mermaid. There are so many ways he puts his kids in danger, never safeguards. He's experimenting on these children. I mean, he does one experiment where he turns his kid into an adult. It's absurd. Wayne Zielinski should be locked up, first off. He has, like, no guidance on any of the stuff he's doing. And uh, at the very least, his kids should have left him as a, as a, you know, a very small person in the third Honey, I Shrunk Ourselves film, because, geez, he's just a, he's terrible. And he's doing this stuff, too, to his neighbor's kids in a lot of these movies, you know? Like, what's going on here, buddy? No, he is a bad dad. I mean, you have a five-year-old, right? I do. Yeah, you, if you have anything of remote value, you secure that stuff because you don't want it to be broken because (laughs) children are clumsy or don't have necessarily the most the greatest sense of respect for other people's stuff as a cat owner i have to keep my lego sets very high up so they don't knock them over and i have to put them back together again now this guy has military grade equipment in his attic this is more than just like oh you know i don't put the lock on my gun every single time this guy has shrinking technology he almost gets his kids killed all the time and you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, just even the fact that like he takes his kids to work and they, he uses the growing ray on like one of his kids toys. You don't do that. You don't take a kid's toy and like do any sort of experiment on it because that kid will freak out. It doesn't matter if he made the toy bigger or what. If you don't give that toy back to that kid in its original state, you're going to create a problem. I was a kid once. I know how I was about things. I can only that, that's just bad dad behavior top to bottom and imagine how many how many people his two-year-old accidentally killed when he was stomping around las vegas you know Mm -hmm. 
And there's apparently a, uh, a reboot coming to Disney Plus called Shrunk, which is going to have Josh Gad playing his son as an adult. So I'm sure that a lot of that trauma is going to be passed on to, to Josh Gad's character, Nick. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kiefer, we are at your grand finale, number one on top five bad dads. What do you got? Well, when you were talking about your number four pick, I didn't say much because my number one pick is Royal Tenenbaum in the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> Deservedly so. Yeah. So this was kind of the impetus for me picking this topic in the first place because not only is this my favorite Wes Anderson film, this is just straight up my favorite movie. I nice. love this film more than any other movie. And, you know, a lot of it is tied up in like my own personal real life feelings in my dad. But there is, uh, you know, before laying into Gene Hackman and how horrible of a dad he is, uh, before I do that with a Royal Tenenbaum's character, this movie is just the perfect balance of everything I love about Wes Anderson in his early works where he is definitely like developing his style, but there's such a very specific humanity to these characters and like they're like, you know, complicated feelings about each other. And then, you know, his later works and how like, you know, meticulously crafted everything is like, it's a perfect balance of like the, the human and the dollhouse. Um, and every, it's a hilarious movie. Like Gene Hackman gets so many hilarious lines in this. Um, everything that he says and comes out of his mouth is funny. Um, you alluded to this earlier. A lot of Wes Anderson movies are fundamentally about father issues when you really come over them. Even his, even the fantastic Mr. Fox is very much about uh, Mr. Fox being a bad dad, uh, a bad patriarch of his family even. But, and, you know, we get some of the best performances from these characters like Bill Murray in um, Rushmore or um, Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel, him sort of casting these like very rough around the edges actors playing paternalistic roles and, you know, getting these all time great career performances out of him. It is in my personal opinion that Hackman as uh, Royal Tenenbaum is the best performance he's ever gotten out of any of his actors in any of his movies, which is, a testament to, you know, one Hackman's ability as an actor, uh, but also, um, you know, the, 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 the relationship that they were having on set. Hackman famously was bullying Wes Anderson on the set because he sort of thought the film was ridiculous nonsense. And that worked because Royal Tenenbaum's uh, characterization in this movie is he is an outsider. He is invading these kids' lives. He disappeared for years and is only coming back because he's out of money and he needs money again. He's like, okay. Uh, and he's also back because his ex-wife whom he never officially divorced, even though they haven't seen each other in years, wants to get married again. And she wants to finalize the divorce. He's doing this all for very selfish reasons. And he lies about having cancer to worm his way back in so he can stay at the house again and not be homeless. So he can uh, you know, be in his family's lives again. He wants to be a parasite. He doesn't want to be a father again, but it's, um, so he's doing the, some of the worst things imaginable. He's manipulating Chaz's grandkids who knowing that Chaz is still reeling from the trauma of his wife's death and his, uh, and all that, um, Royal can say in response to it is like, she was a terribly attractive woman. <laughs> like, <laughs> That, that's, that's his way of trying to empathize with a horrible situation. But the thing is, Royal is an excellent granddad, actually. 
He knows that the kids are being held back by Chaz's insecurities about their safety, and he's showing them a fun time. And the kids like him for who he is. And that sort of becomes like his starting point into actually liking being around the family and realizing that he had this void in his life and that he was being a bad dad this entire time and he doesn't have to be this selfish asshole. And look, I know it's a list about bad dads, but what I love about this film is, I mean, you get the best of both worlds. You get to see Royal be this huge piece of shit that we can all sort of identify pieces of actual, you know, bad parents in, but he develops and you do ultimately at the end of the day, as I talked about a minute ago with Darth Vader, um, this is obviously a more human example of it. You want to believe that eventually people can change and be better people no matter how old they get. At some point, you know, he becomes the person that is capable of not only receiving love, but giving love. He's able to reciprocate love. He isn't just, you know, a father and therefore demanding of respect. He actually becomes the father that these kids need it as they're all at the same time going through some of the worst moments of their lives. Um, Chaz having conflicting feelings about his adopted sister. Uh, obviously, Margot's failing marriage with an older man that she's obviously projecting a lot of like her own parental issues onto. Uh, not when I said, ch- sorry, Chaz is um, the one who lost the wife. Uh, Richie Tenenbaum yeah, uh, Richie, having yeah. these complicated feelings about his adopted sister uh, bombing uh, on the tennis court, um, <laughs> which Famously. also has like another um, funny moment where like Royal's like very straight up like, I had a lot of money riding on you. I lost a lot of money because you <laughs> choked out there. Um, but no, it's this deeply emotionally, wonderfully crafted film. And it's all centered around Gene Hackman, who obviously was a huge asshole on the set of the film, but ends up being in service of this movie where he um, goes from this parasitic outsider who hates everything around him, not hates, but like has like this very, very much like a, I can control this attitude about everything around him to seeing people for who they are and learning to love them for it. Well said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, yeah, great performance. I didn't realize that he and uh, Wes Anderson didn't get along on the set of that movie. Is uh, I'm hoping that it, they, maybe they dive into it on the Criterion disc. Uh, so I don't really know um, like if it's on the Criterion disc or like if they've reconciled since then. This was one of um, Hackman's last roles before yeah. he stopped acting entirely. Well, whatever they did, it worked because it obviously stuck with you. It's it's one of your favorite. Well, you said your favorite movie of all time. Mm. It's definitely my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And uh, I got nothing but love for that one. So excellent choice. Unlike your number one, my number one has absolutely zero redemption arc. This has been my number one with a bullet. And I rewatched this just to make sure. And uh, yep, still stands up as number one. Harry Wormwood from Matilda. Hi, Dad. Are you in this family? Mm-hmm. Hello? Are you in this family? Dinner time is family time. What is this trash you're reading? It's not trash, Daddy. It's lovely. It's called Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Moby what? This is filth. Crash! It's not mine! It's a library book! Crash! I'm fed up with all this reading! You're a wormwood, you start acting like one! 
Sit up and look at the TV. This is a character played by Danny DeVito, who also directed Matilda. He's a sleazy used car salesman, and he has two kids. He has a son who he openly loves and adores, and he has his daughter Matilda who he dismisses, even at one point calling her a mistake. He's only abusive towards her. He calls her names, he tears her books in half because she's really, really intelligent and she wants to learn as much as she can. And for some reason, he thinks this is strange. He is threatened by it. And so he goes and he starts tearing her books in half. He's into a lot of shady stuff. And Matilda tries to warn him about his illegal activities. And again, he just calls her names and dismisses her. And at one point, uh, he's on his used car lot, which he's selling cars for like way over what they should be sold at. And he sells a car to this headmaster who's uh, at a, the headmaster of this very rigid private school. And so he decides to send her to this school to shape her up. And so Matilda goes to this school, and as time passes, she has a really great teacher who understands and tries to foster her intelligence. She's got some really great friends. But at the same time, this sadistic headmistress is there. I mean, the abuse that she's doing to these kids mentally and physically, she goes as far as like slingshotting kids across the yard, trying to get them to land on a spiked fence. And like I said, when you're watching this movie in, in I don't know, 96, 97, you're thinking there's got to be some type of redemptive arc for Harry. There is no redemption arc in this kid's film. Uh, in the book, so I'm going to spoil some stuff about Matilda here. So if you haven't seen Matilda and you still want to skip forward a couple minutes, but at the end of this movie, he goes and signs adoption papers and gives her away before he flees the country. <laughs> and in the book, it's even worse. In the book, he doesn't even sign the papers. He just dips without saying anything to her at all. The original author of this is Ronald Dahl, who has a ton of children's books and films that have been adapted from his books. And he often had these like macabre kid themes. This one is especially personal. The headmaster was based on an abusive headmaster he had in school. The dude had like a pretty rough childhood. He was paddled by teachers. His dad died when he was three. His other sister died when he was three. Um, and then his mom died when he was like 12 years old. Harry Wormwood, I mean, the guy hates his daughter so much that he's happy to give her up before he flees the country to, to get rid of the tail that's on him. In real life, a sad kind of footnote to this. So in real life, while the movie was being made in 96, Mara Wilson, who plays Matilda, uh, her mother had cancer. Danny DeVito, who, like I said, was directing, his wife was also playing her mother in the film, Rhea Perlman. They kind of took Mara Wilson in and took care of her while they were filming this movie. So they were really, really mean to her on screen and really, really great to her off screen. And in order to allow her mom to see the movie, they did a rough cut of it at like four months uh, before release and showed her so she could see her daughter on screen. And then she ended up passing away before the movie came out. It was dedicated to her, uh, to Mara Wilson's mom. So he's a great dude in real life, but <laughs> man, Harry Wormwood, what a piece of shit. He is yeah. by far my number one. No, uh, if there's one thing Danny DeVito can do, it's uh, play a horrible dad. Like it's <laughs> Frank Reynolds <laughs> <Yeah>. and uh, <laughs> the, the, the father and Matilda. Yeah, no, he's a, huge just irredeemable piece of shit i remember getting actively mad at this movie and like not being able to sit through it sometimes just because of how like mean they were being to matilda without like any like obviously like matilda wins at the end she gets like the 
the life that she wanted this entire time and somebody that respects her, sees her as a person, all this, that, and the other. But like, now I find it like way, like I'm able to find it funnier now, but like as a kid, I was just getting so upset for Matilda because of how (laughs) mean these parents were in like such an open and flagrant way. And it's, yeah, no, I mean, great job. All right, Kiefer, before we get to our honorable mentions, let's run down our lists one more time, and I will kick us off here. At number five, I had Peter McAllister from Home Alone. At number four, I had Royal Tenenbaum from The Royal Tenenbaums. At number three, I had Thanos from various Marvel movies. At number two, I had Wayne Zielinski from the Honey, I Shrunk the series. And then at number one, Harry Wormwood from Matilda. Great list. Uh, my number, uh, my full list here. Uh, number five, Pa Cox from Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, Wrong Kid Died. Uh, four, uh, H. Clifford McBride in uh, James Gray's Ad Astra. Number three, Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. Number two, Moe's Prey in Paper Moon. And number one, Royal Tenenbaum from The Royal Tenenbaums. I think it's a testament to the the depth of this topic that we only crossed over on one of our picks. That's uh, that's great. I thought we were for sure going to cross over on a couple. Yeah, and I'm curious what the honorable mentions are because there are so, so many that I had to switch around or like cut from this list because I wanted to make sure that my five were from movies I really, really loved and had like plenty to say. Well, let's uh, let's hear some of yours. What were some of those honorable mentions you had that were not mentioned so far? All right, so the rest of these are movies that I like, but one that I didn't really care for that I really considered including on this list because it is kind of ruinous to the movie for me is uh, Pa Kent from Man of Steel. Oh, Um, yeah. Should have let those kids drown. (laughs) Yeah. He's not wrong kid died. He's more more kids should die. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think that's the reason I ultimately put a Pa Cox in there because I think Pa Cox and Pa Kent would have a lot in common with one another um, in terms of raising supermen who <laughs> are but are very shitty to their kids he is just an asshole and pa kent is like such an important presence in superman's life but in uh this movie it's kevin costner that plays uh jonathan kent right is that yeah that it, it is yeah but in this movie he's just like you gotta look out for yourself you gotta like keep this thing a secret and you know maybe some people aren't worth saving and then that culminates <laughs> in like a tornado where like they're trying to save people from the street from being hit by this tornado he tells his son not to save him when he easily could have and gets sucked into a tornado, pointlessly traumatizing everybody in the immediate area who had to witness him die. Yeah. But Hey, you know, bad dad got the, got his fate at the end. Um, <laughs> really quickly, since I spent way too much time getting mad about Pa Kent, um, Jeff Daniels as uh, Bernard Berkman in the squid and the whale. Fantastic one. That was on my list until like two hours before we <laughs> recorded. <laughs> He is such a piece of shit in like a way that I watched this movie last year, most recently, and it like he still just got under my skin. And how very good that performance is, mm. because mm-hmm. you, you you see that kind of piece of shit behavior and you know bad dads all the time, uh, you know, dating and he dates his own student uh, <laughs> who's way closer to his son's age. Um, he's just he just talks so pretentiously about things and just has this very overwhelming presence of like domineering presence over his ex-wife. It's all just awful shit. And the way that he impresses that on his children is just so scary. Um, yeah. but Some might mo- say he's the fillet of bad dads. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Also, he didn't recognize Hey You by Pink Floyd, the ultimate dad song. Like, come on, man. <laughs> um, from the same cloth, uh, Dustin Hoffman's uh, Harold Meyerowitz from Meyerowitz yep. Stories. Um, I feel like Noah Baumbach has been trying to make his Royal Tenenbaums his entire career. And Meyerowitz Stories is probably the closest he's gotten to it. I really yeah. like that movie. And um, you mentioned Thanos on your list. I almost included uh, Ego, the living planet from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, played by Kurt Russell. Um, my favorite superhero movie, probably. Um, as much as I've been burnt out on the you know presence of a bunch of superhero movies over the last few years, especially, um, the Guardians movies are still very good to me. Um, obviously, you've heard my strong feelings about Nebula and Gamora, but I really like the how much of a piece of shit Kurt Russell gets to be as Ego. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the, the third one, by the way? I did. I love it. Yeah, great. All right, I I had a couple that were not mentioned yet. I had Nicolas Cage's character from the movie Mom and Dad. Have you seen that movie before? Yeah, it's a crazy movie where all of a sudden parents uh, are compelled to kill their kids. And uh, he is wild in that movie. Robert De Niro's character, I for, I'm forgetting the name, but from This Boy's Life, which features a very young Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a real piece of trash in that movie. I haven't seen it in a very long time and I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. So I wasn't going to have a, a great perspective on it, which is why it didn't make my list. But he's a, a terrible stepfather in that one. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's good. It's powerful. It's going to piss mm. you off. <laughs> a little more lighthearted on this one, but uh, not for Chicken Little. Buck Cluck from Chicken Little is a terrible father. He's constantly criticizing Chicken Little. He doesn't believe Chicken Little. And the only time he decides to show love to him is when he hits a home run in a baseball game. And to me, that just does not make up for all the torture he's put his kid through. It's real, though. It's definitely real. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Then we got uh, Randy Quaid from the 1989 film Parents. I think his name is Mike in that film, but he... uh, Have you heard of Parents from 1989? This is another one I haven't seen. Okay. It's about these, uh, this family that moves, I think they're, I think it's set in the fifties and they move into the suburban town and then his kids or the, the, the kids of the family start to suspect that their parents are actually cannibals and it goes to some very wild places. If you can ignore the fact that Randy Quaid is a psychopath in real life, you might be able to sit back and enjoy this one. And then I had two on my list that I did not include because they do have redemptive arcs. But at the same time, before those arcs, they were absolutely terrible fathers. I had Mrs. Doubtfire, Robin Williams' character from Mrs. Doubtfire, who, uh, again, only decides to get into his kid's life when the absolute worst happens and custody is taken away from him. And then I had Fletcher Reed from Liar Liar, who a guy that stops making empty promises and lying to his son only because his son uh, casts a magic spell on him that makes it so he cannot lie anymore. You were saying this a lot and like, I'm like, it's making me remember other examples, just a lot of 90 movies where it's just like, let's just put a piece of shit parent in there. Like obviously liar, liar (laughs) skews older, but like there is like the kid parent dynamic in that. But uh, like, I'm thinking about like Tim Allen and the Santa Claus and shit like that, where it's just like, there's let's make a bad dad and see what happens. Yeah, and the uh, the disturbing trend in those movies of making the dad redemptive, well, they have stepdads who are actually pretty great stepdads that they kind of like position to be uh, an antagonist to these terrible dads. Like mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan 
in Mrs. Doubtfire seems like a really good dude. And same with uh, Judge Reinhold in the Santa Claus movies. Yeah, like it's very like I think it's very funny that we've come around on that thing where it's like, oh, yeah, like the stepdad is really cool. and We need to recognize that. (laughs) Whereas like they were just needlessly antagonistic towards it. It's like every character from like those 90s movies where like you're threatened by the stepdad or just doing the Kenny Powers thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And that reminds me, too. I didn't even uh, think about it when I was doing this, but uh, the movie Stepdad from, I think, 1987 with uh, Terry O'Quinn. That's another another one that could have made this list for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Kiefer, amazing list. Tons of, of movies on our list and our honorable mentions that people can watch if they want to get their fix of a bad dad. But let's talk about some good stuff. Select and Start. I'm sure people can listen to Select and Start anywhere you listen to this podcast. So it should be easy for you to switch right over. What do you have on tap that you can talk about that's coming up on Select and Start? Uh, it's a very exciting time for the show. Uh, I release new episodes every two weeks. Uh, I have a lot of great episodes coming up. Uh, after the time of this recording, I'm going to be entering what I'm calling Independence Day, which nice. is me talking about uh, indie games during the month of July. I'm very excited to talk about um, The Outer Wilds and um, another game uh, that I am yet to announce with uh, returning guest Eric Peacock. Oh, nice! Um, so that's going to be a very that's going to be a very fun episode coming in August. I'm going to be talking about uh, another Metal Gear game with another returning guest, Manu, uh, from the uh, podcast Sons from Tierra's podcast, as well as uh, my brother, my captain, my podcast, uh, Lord of the Rings recap uh, podcast. Um, just a lot of exciting games coming up. I'm going to be talking about another Legend of Zelda game because I love this series so much, and a lot of people love this series so much. So people have been telling me they want to talk about. Um, the Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask and have a very exciting guest for that one. So look forward to that. Uh, you also have 24 episodes that you'll be able to go back and listen to uh, about uh, games like Sonic the Sonic Adventure 2 Battle, uh, multiple Legend of Zelda games, uh, just a lot of games that uh, from different eras, uh, whether they're from the last couple of years or from you know the 80s and 90s. So yeah, if you like video games, uh, it doesn't matter what level of experience you have with them. I have professionals, I have streamers, I have published authors uh, on the topic of video games. And I have lifelong gamers and I have new gamers on the show. I had a Last of Us episode with somebody who had only gotten into gaming over the past few years, and it was a very engaging discussion. Um, you can listen to Select and Start, uh, as Jason said, wherever you listen to podcasts. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to me uh, talk very quickly about Bad Dads today. <laughs> we will have links to everything in the show notes. And yeah, of course, go go check out Select and Start. I mean, he has uh, an episode about Jet Set Radio, one of the greatest yeah. soundtracks in video game history on there. Oh, yeah. And yeah, if, if anything else, if nothing else, please listen to the episode Jason did on GoldenEye 007. It is very fun. And even if you haven't played the game, we talk about movies a bunch in it, so very much worth a listen. Yeah, we talk about some James Bond. All right, listeners, there are a ton of terrible film dads out there. I'm sure we missed some. Please let me and Kiefer know what we missed. Again, you can find me at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram, and on the Cinematics Facebook page. Or you can do a good old-fashioned email at Force5Podcast at gmail.com. 
Links to everything Force 5 and Select and Start are in the show notes. That's links, social media, all that stuff. As usual, make it easy for you to support me and make it easy for you to support our guests. And of course, if you'd like to support me, review the show, tell your friends about the Force 5, follow and interact with me on social media. That's all you got to do. Those few very free, very simple things let me know I should keep doing this show. The Force 5 theme song comes courtesy of Nate Spears, and the Top 5 list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some films with terrible, terrible dads. We'll be right back.